0: Daniel Pipes, it's great to have you in Australia. You've been with the Centre for Independent Studies and speaking at our annual concilium conference. You were here to speak about uh, anti-Semitism and when we first met six or seven years ago, soon after I joined CIS, we talked about anti-Semitism then and your big concern at that time was the rise of Islamic uh, anti-Semitism. Has much changed for you in in the intervening years?
1: I think that remains the single greatest uh, threat of anti-Semitism, in part because it's establishment. Yes, there are others, in particular Christian anti-Semites, but they're not part of some legitimate government or movement or church. They're outside it. They're rebellion. They're insurgents. They're uh, at the fringes. In the Muslim world, it's not at the fringes. It's the governments in many cases that um, encourage anti Semitism. It is the establishment um, Islamic institutions. So that is, I believe, the great problem.
0: And do you think in Western countries, where we're seeing a rise in left wing anti Semitism, this is attributable in part to the uh, sympathy that many people in Western countries have to. Muslim countries, and to issues confronting particular Muslim communities, such as, for example, the Palestinians. Good point.
1: I think a large reason why the left has become so anti-Israel, and by implication, anti-Semitic, is that they're friends with the Islamists. They're allies, they work together. I mean, say in Britain, in 2003, when the war against Saddam Hussein was brewing, It was the hard left and the Islamists who were the main opponents to that war. And since that time, they have become ever closer allies as symbolized by Jeremy Corbyn. But it's not just in Britain, it's not just Corbyn, it's around the world. The left has found it useful to be allied with the Islamists. The Islamists are in some ways the cannon fodder. The left sees itself as the leadership and the Islamists provide the troops it's an unnatural alliance in that their world outlooks are very different but it has its utility for both sides the left opens the door in the west to the islamists legitimates them and the left as suggested before provides the manpower so they work together and that means the left adopt a topic in a, a, a point of view that is simple for them to give to the islamists it's, you know, it's not part of their agenda. So the Islamists are anti-Zionist and anti-Semitic? Well, I'll give it to them. We'll join them in that.
0: You mentioned Jeremy Corbyn, the uh, leader of the British Labour Party. The party is, of course, embroiled in, a, in, a, in every increasing scandal about anti-Semitism. Yet Corbyn himself denies that he's an anti semite I would say you know, he's anti-colonial, yes, and anti-racist, but not possibly anti, uh, anti-Semitic. How, how is it that this Uh, as it were, um, divergence of points of view or this misalignment of points of view is possible that Corbyn can continue, and his supporters continue to insist that they are uh, adamantly opposed to racism and yet at the same time espouse strongly anti-Semitic points of view?
1: Well, there's a great debate that's been going on for decades whether one can be anti-Zionist without being anti-Semitic. And generally those who are anti-Zionist say, yes, you can. Those who are pro-Zionist say, no, you can't. I'm more convinced by the latter argument. I think invariably the anti-Zionist, that is to say critical, highly obsessively critical of Israel, bleeds into anti-Semitism. It doesn't have to, it doesn't always, but generally it does. And because
0: criticism of Israel is quite legitimate, as one can course. see if one goes to the Knesset in Jerusalem. Oh, of course, of
1: course. Criticism of the Israeli government, the Israeli society, or Israeli, anything else is perfectly legitimate. It's the obsessive compulsive uh, undifferentiated uh, criticism that marks
0: the problem. Do you think that the emergence of uh, Donald Trump as the U.S. president, who is criticized by some as being racist, but I don't think is criticized by many as being anti-Semitic, will help to galvanize the position of Israel uh, on the international stage? Uh, Trump
1: in this, as in other cases, has a complex impact. Uh, He is not someone with a philosophy, he is not someone with a worked out uh, approach to policy. He is spontaneous, whatever he thinks at the moment, and the the moment changes, he changes. So it is difficult to find a consistent thread. Uh, His policies have been pro-Israel. I think that could change quickly. I predict it probably will change, but so far he has been Uh, very pro-Israel. Where it has caused heartache, heartburn, I should say, where it's caused heartburn is that he has now utilized his pro-Israel bona fides to attack the Democrats. And the net effect of this is to make the Democrats see being pro-Israel as being a Republican position. And so the Israelis are not happy about this. They're delighted that he's taking positions that are friendly to them, they're not so happy that he's forcing them to say no to the Democrats. And for example, with the two members of Congress who were going to visit Israel, who are democratic, who are hostile to Israel, the Israelis who were ready to let them in. Trump said, no, don't, and so they didn't. And now they have a problem with the Democratic Party. So it's a complex situation. Uh, as with everything Trump, I think one can only really judge it when it's over mm. we're in the middle of it now and it it's going every which way and uh, i cannot draw conclusions yet
0: uh, you mentioned the case of the two congressmen members of congress uh, which Divided opinion, there were those who thought that, uh, that Israel had been right, or Benjamin Netanyahu himself had been right to exclude them and that it, why should a country admit people who were going to criticize the country and bring a big press corps with them to do that. Others such as you argued that in fact it would have been far better for those Congress, members of Congress to have gone to Israel, seen for themselves the quality of life and made their own minds up about that. Do you still stand by that?
1: I do, and in addition to the point I made before, that even if they didn't, if they were hostile the whole time, still, uh, the Israeli government came to the conclusion, I think rightly, that it was not in its interest to exclude these two members of Congress. Uh, It's a sovereign decision made by the Israelis, perfectly entitled to say no to them, but not a wise one politically. Israel has a problem globally with the left. Uh, My favorite instance of that is a picture in an Indian city of members of the 15 million strong farmers union, communist farmers union, with a great big (coughs) banner uh, promoting BDS. Uh, You know, what do Indian farmers know about these things? But they're members of a communist union, and so they're (coughs) anti-Israel. Likewise, Bolsonaro appears in Brazil, and he's on the right, and he's pro-Israel. Wherever you look around the world, it 's the same division it 's a fairly new one. If one puts it in American terms, the first third of israel 's existence, Israel was m- much more popular among the Democrats on the left, the liberal left, than the conservatives and then there was a middle period where it was all the same and Now, for 20 or so years, uh, increasingly the conservatives have an affection, a warmth towards Israel, and the liberals, and especially as you go out to the left, are cool to hostile and it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's in Japan, it's in India, it's in South Africa, it's in Brazil, it's It's in Britain,
0: where the Labour Party, which was <laughs> traditionally the home of, uh, of British Jewry, has now really, uh, I think, become quite isolated, and, and Jews are seeing themselves um, as being more aligned with the policies of a, of a centre-right government, and indeed feeling that were there to be a Labour government in Britain, it, Britain might be an unsafe place to live, which is a complete... Uh, reversal of the way things were in the 1950s and 60s.
1: So I think to myself, well, what can Israel do about this? And my conclusion is a rather radical one. The global hostility to Israel on the left is not due to ashkenazi Sephardi relations among the Jews of Israel. It is not due to the uh, very active hostility of Iran and Israel, uh, sometimes now hot war, it is not due to income inequalities in Israel, et cetera, et cetera. It's due to one thing and one thing only, the status of the Palestinians living in the West Bank and Gaza, not the Palestinians in Israel or the Israeli Arabs, not those living in Egypt or Syria or Australia, West Bank and Gaza. Uh, That's the focus of the left, they're upset about that. objectively looked at, it's, their situation is not the best, but it's certainly far from the worst. Uh, and yet there's this obsessive um, criticism of Israel on the part of, of, pleading the part of the Palestinians, the West Bank, and Gaza. So my conclusion is that for Israel to escape this g- large and growing hostility on the left is to take care of that problem. And the only way to take care of that problem is by convincing the Palestinians of the West Bank and Gaza that the gig is up and they lost and it's time to reconcile themselves to the Jewish state and to build their own polity, economy, society, and culture. It's time for them to realize that the war is over. The conflict has been going on for over a century and they lost. And it's time for them to stop galvanizing public opinion, BDS, UN resolutions, and so forth. It's time for them to build their own, to, to tend their own garden. Uh, I called Israel victory. I think it's necessary for the Palestinians to understand that they've been defeated. Israel's won. It's time to move on. And what's interesting is that a number of Arab states and many Arabs and Muslims are coming to that same conclusion enough already. It's been going on for decade after decade. Palestinians, wake up. It's over. Come to terms.
0: But that's not realistic, is it? It may well be true that other Arab states are beginning to reconcile themselves to the existence of Israel. But in Ramallah, and in Gaza there is an implacable opposition to Israel and it seems to me that the that without wishing always to blame the Palestinians who never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity the more militant uh, the Palestinians become the more likely it is that Israelis are going to uh, return a right- wing government the more right wing government the more right wing government is the more it will be intent upon establishing security if there were to be a greater sense of Possible peace between within within the state of Israel and between Gaza and and the West Bank as well. It'd be far more likely that a peaceful solution would be would be attainable. But it seems to me that for as long as Israel is bombarded with rocket attacks from Gaza, the Israeli people themselves are not going to uh, relax their guard.
1: Well, you started by saying it was unattainable. I don't agree. Uh, the Palestinians, the the Israelis are by any standard doing well, Um, economically, um, culturally, uh, in terms of security. They're doing well. Uh, Former prime minister of Israel, Ehud Barak, called it a villa in the jungle. Surrounded by problems, but it's doing well. Palestinians are doing very badly, Um, impoverished and oppressed and backward. And there's no chance of their leaving that until they give up their irredentist claim to the land that Israel now controls. Uh, I don't see why they can't be induced to give up. Uh, they're not supermen. I'm a historian, and I look at history, and I see that, by and large, international wars end when one side gives up. So take World War I, and you had the Germans defeated, but they didn't give up. Their armies were standing and their cities were intact. And they thought, well, this was a stab in the back. This was false. We didn't really lose. They won another round. They got their second round. Uh, And this time the Allies understood that you can't leave their cities and their armies intact. You have to show them total victory. You have to show them that it's over. And they learned the lesson, and it worked. Uh, And you can find throughout history conflicts that end cleanly and are over. 1965, the United States, 1975 in Vietnam, plenty of such occasions, and you can see others where it's not clean, where there's still the hope. Only when that hope is erased, when you cannot achieve your war goals. I lived in 1975 as an American. I saw we put in all this money and all these soldiers and we lost. And we gave up. It was over. Nobody has since 1975 said, oh, you know what, let's give it another try. It's over. Finished. We lost. I would like mutatis, mutandis, I would like the Palestinians to come to a similar conclusion. It's over. They're lost. There's no reason to think they can prevail. And that, in turn, would eventually lead the left to understand that um, Palestinians are not just particularly discontent. and busy doing their own thing and
0: find some other issue to fill. But just to press you on this, because I think it is, it's, it's attainable and it's logically possible, but it seems extremely unlikely. Uh, last year, I visited Israel and went to Ramallah and went to a, a refugee camp, where this sense of grievance and um, of and victimhood was being transmitted through the generations, sure. backed up by the United Nations, for as long as there those international international organisations and an international imprimatur upon the the plight. Of the, of the Palestinian people. It's going to be very, very difficult to undo three and coming up to four generations of thinking about a particular problem. That's going to require a very dramatic change in the quality of leadership, which I have to say I don't quite see coming.
1: Well, I agree with your point that international support for the Palestinians has given them one motive for thinking they can win. A second would be Islamic doctrine that says that any area that has been under Muslim control in the past must be in the future, namely uh, what Israel controls. And thirdly, the Israeli security establishment is timid and weak. So there are three reasons why the Palestinians uh, are motivated to continue. Nonetheless, I think there are real fractures and there are plenty of reasons to believe that if uh, the Western states back Israel and send a signal, over, done. You will get no benefits until you give up this fight. I believe the Palestinians are ripe for this kind of change. I think they are tired. Yes, yes, you're right. They talk about victimization, and they talk about going on uh, revolution until victory and the like, but I think there is an opening now I certainly think it's worth exploring. Maybe I'm wrong, but we won't find out unless we try.
0: Can I ask you about Iran? One of the marks of Donald Trump's presidency was to undo the plan of action with Iran that had been uh, forged by the Obama administration. Where does Iran now fit in the complex, matrix of, of, of the Middle East. And just to supplement that question, recently we had at CIS the American scholar John Mearsheimer, who argued that, in fact, what the US needed to do was bring Iran back into the Western fold uh, because of the risk of losing it either to Russia or to China. Is it possible to, for, for Iran to be brought back into the community of nations? And is the United States going about achieving this objective in in the right way, noting of course that when the G7 met in Beiritz, lo and behold, uh, the Iranians suddenly appeared on the sidelines.
1: Well, we can all agree it's a good idea to attempt to bring the Iranian regime back into the community of nations, that'd be great. The question is, is it feasible? What price would have to be paid? Um, What are the implications of this effort? So yes, in principle, good idea, in practice, impractical. I mean, one could ask the same question, what would it take to bring Putin back in or she? You know, these are governments, and Iran even more than the Russian and Chinese governments, that have a point of view and have ambitions. And uh, the Iranian one's been going now for 40 years. It has an Islamist ideology. Uh, I hope at some point it'll fracture and We can reach accommodations with it, but so far, not at all. So at some point, one has to say, this is a hostile government. This is an enemy government. Uh, At what point do you say uh, one cannot appease it, one cannot accommodate it, one cannot bring it back? One has to make life difficult for it. One has to take away resources. One has to punish it. One has to confront it. I certainly think over the past 40 years, the Iranians have shown in action and in uh, words that they are an enemy. They certainly treat us as an enemy. They talk about a world without America. There is a real fear in the United States that were the Iranians to get nuclear weapons, they would not use these for the usual nuclear purposes such as happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki of attacking a, a place and destroying it. I shouldn't say usual, but the historic. Uh, But they would use it uh, in the atmosphere, high up, over the central United States and uh, they would knock out uh, the electricity grid. It's called electromagnetic pulse and that the electricity grid in much of the United States would go out. Well, think of life without electricity. The U.S. government has estimated that 90 percent of Americans would die. So we're thinking about these things and John Mersheimer hops along and says, Oh, accommodate them, be nice to them, and uh, they'll be nice to you in turn. No. No. When you have an enemy, you have to recognize an enemy and deal with an enemy as an enemy.
0: How significant is the uh, apparent popular support for, or rather popular antagonism, towards the regime uh, that we're seeing in in Iran? How significant is that, do you think, as a factor?
1: I would estimate that 85 percent of the Iranian populace is hostile to the regime. The mosques are empty, <laughs> the butchers' stores are empty. Uh, people live their lives behind closed doors. Uh, there's an enormous amount of, of social pathology, uh, prostitution and drug taking and alcoholism and so forth. There's great alienation. If any, if it's comparable to anything, it would be the Soviet Union the 1970s, 80s uh, when The government is powerful, aggressive, making trouble around the world, in this case around the region, but it's hollow inside because it doesn't have popular support. So, until now, the government has managed to quell all these disturbances and probably will continue to for some time to come because it doesn't really have a a leadership, it doesn't really have an outlook other than not liking what's taking place. But one of these days, it's going to collapse. Uh, violently, nonviolently, I don't know, but its days it's, it are numbered, and they're making hay while they can, they're doing, they're aggressive. Basically the Middle East today is the region trying to deal with Iran and Iranian aggression, uh, and this has interestingly created uh, alliances, for example, between Israel, well, not quite alliances, but alignments between Israel and the Gulf states. And other changes as well, because the Iranians are on the warpath, and they now dominate four Arab capitals Baghdad, Damascus, Beirut, and Sana'a, uh, Yemen. So it's all about Iran. Iran is the topic of the day.
0: Is the United States taking an appropriate lead in foreign policy in, in the Middle East? Many commentators in the West are concerned that in with Trump's presidency, the United States is abandoning a role to which we have become accustomed. Is that happening, do you think, or is it just changing?
1: The U.S. role in the Middle East peaked under George W. Bush. Wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, heavy involvement with other issues, Arab-Israeli, democratization, and so forth. Ever since 2009, a decade now, There's been a retreat. Obama retreated and now Trump is retreating. And generally Americans have not had a taste for having, spending trillions and losing thousands of lives in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. These are not places of central concern to Americans. So it's popular to pull back. Uh, There's very little constituency for staying and increasing. Also, the main commodity of concern, the main economic interest we've had has been Mm. gas and oil, and we've become quite independent in that regard. So our global concerns still focus on that, but domestically, much less. So, yeah, there is a retreat. Now, with Trump, you have chaos, you know, he's about to launch the missiles against Iran, and then the last moment he decides not to unpredictable and not quite sure where it's going uh, so as i indicated before can we can only judge uh, trump after it's over uh, we're in mid-course now and uh, i don't know i mean it, so far no great problems but who knows what comes next
0: islamic terrorism has continued to make a big impact on western countries and in australia we've uh, we've had our own experience of that as well it, one of the Consequences of that, it seems to me, is that it, it has led to people talking more openly about Islam and what Islam teaches, and consequently to an awareness that, in fact, there are very different schools of thought within Islam, and that uh, extremists are not representative of the whole of Islam. It's one one of the, I think, burdens that's been borne by the the wider Islamic community. How are tensions between rival groups within Islam faring, in your estimation? And is it reasonable to think that there will be a, a, a reformation, to, to, to borrow a word, it's not an appropriate word, but to a reformation of Islam that will allow for modernization, increased liberalization within the West, sort of thing that's called for by scholars such as Iron Hersiali. And myself. And you.
1: Uh, you brought up lots of points. Uh, On the first one, yes, it's been a thorough education about Islam in the West and around the world. I mean, think, I don't know what your knowledge of Buddhism is, but I suspect you know a whole lot more about Islam than Buddhism at this point. It's part of our lives. Uh, And I find the terms I could not use 20 years ago, jihad, Sharia, Islamism, I use routinely now and are understood widely. Um, That said, there's a broad, bifurcation of opinion in the West, where the right sees, as with the Soviet Union, an ideological foe that is formidable and must be confronted. And the left does not see that foe, sees a potential partner, uh, doesn't see ideology as particularly (coughs) important, sees personality and geostrategic interests as conflicting, but nothing particularly larger. And so left and right have come to different conclusions. And uh, there's really no conversation between them. Uh, the left tends to say Islam is not part of this. This is crazies. And the right tends to say this is Islam, the religion. I'm in the middle. Uh, I say it, it's a form of Islam. It's not all of Islam, the a form of Islam. Um, And I'm happy to say in the United States, increasingly that is a position that people given a thought are coming to as well. For example, in the 2016 presidential uh, nomination for the Republican uh, presidential position, uh, virtually every single candidate spoke like I do. But more broadly, you see it's a I think it's deeply mistaken, but that is the, increasingly popular position. As for your second point about reform of Islam, uh, that's the heart of the debate between my position and the uh, more populist position. They say, no, the Quran is the Quran given by God. Nothing changes. What you see is what it has always been in 7th century, 21st century, and into the future. I say, I'm a historian, I see 7th century Islam as different from 14th century, different from 18th century, different from the beginning of my career, uh, and today, it's all the time evolving. And in my career, which now is fifty years on this subject, next month, fifty years, um, it's gone down. It's gone gotten worse, more hostile, more radical. But if it can get worse, it can also get better. And so, what we need to do as non-Muslims is help the reformers and help the moderates and um, work with those who wish to modernize Islam. It can be done. And we have an important role. We can't do it ourselves, but we can fight the Islamists and we can help the reformers. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Uh, in most Western countries, both domestically and internationally, we tend to slip into a policy of working with the Islamists and ignoring the reformers. so, one of the main things I do. And my job is to try and point out the problems with the Islamists and help the reformers, whether it be financially giving them a platform or giving them applause, bringing their message uh, to the wider public as well as to Muslims. Very important. The reformers are the key and there's every reason to think that they can reform. Let me put it just in conclusion in a comparative religious light. 500 years ago, the three major monotheistic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all had some form of prohibition on interest and all had some form of indentured servitude. Judaism and Christianity not easily left those behind. In The United States, we had a huge civil war over the question of slavery. It didn't just happen. In Islam, there still is uh, a widespread notion that interest on money, even if it's 3% a year, is ribba, is illegal against the religion, and of course, there's slavery in many countries. So it's not that Islam can't change, will never change, but it's behind. It's not been part of the modernization po- process and the way that Judaism and Christianity have been. Um, but I'm perfectly optimistic that it can be. And so what we need to do is help those Muslims who want to make that change.
0: I think that's important work, and, and it's, it's very hopeful. Um, I think that one of the problems in the West when thinking about uh, Reformation, using the analogy of course of the Protestant Reformation in, in the 16th century, but as scholars work more and more on that area, we come to see that in fact there was not a single moment of Reformation, but the Reformation was a process that happened over a period of centuries. I think that people who use the language of Reformation to talk about Islam are hopeful or even expect that, there will be a moment of change. You're indicating, of course, and I think rightly, that those moments of change seldom happen, certainly not when it comes to uh, faith and and religious belief, a belief that is held by many, many millions of people. It's a process that has to happen. And and I wonder to what extent we need to be prepared for this to take perhaps one or two centuries rather than one or two decades, and certainly one or two years.
1: Uh, I agree, and I ha- came to the conclusion back in 2013 that Islamism as a worldwide phenomenon had peaked the year before and was on its way down. And now six years later, and I find vindication for that point of view. I think a couple things happened then. One was that Islamists who had co- by and large cooperated together, can no longer work together, whether it be Sunni and Shi'i, violent and non-violent, Republican and monarchical, uh, or even personality, as in, for example, Turkey. Erdogan and, and Gulen have the same outlook, but they can't stand each other. <coughs> Political war. So that's one thing, they they fight each other in Syria and Egypt and everywhere. And se- I'm not talking about the West now, I'm talking about majority Muslim countries. And secondly, Muslims who have had the uh, privilege of living under Islamist rule, so no thank you. I mentioned Iran before. Uh, Egypt is the most spectacular example, where in 2013, uh, the Egyptians went on the streets in the largest political demonstration in human history, who knows how many millions, and said no to Mohamed Morsi. Uh, So between these two, inability to work together and uh, unpopularity, I think the Islamists are on the way down. That's not to say it's inevitable, it's not to say it can't go back up, not to say we can relax, but I think the tide has turned. a a movement which began in the 1920s, 90 years later, uh, is
0: weakening. Finally, Daniel, you mentioned a moment ago that you will have marked 50 years uh, in your academic career as a historian next month. That's uh, September 2019. What, as you look back over those 50 years, what would you consider your most significant accomplishments? And as a historian, you might want to leave that to historians, but I'll press you on that.
1: Well, the first 30 years, until 9-11, were consumed with trying to tell people, hey, Islam is important, pay attention to it. Uh, My thesis, for example, was on a form of military organization in medieval Middle East, and saying, you need to understand Islam to understand this military organization. And then since 9-11, which is almost 20 years now, uh, it's been almost the reverse of saying, whoa, it's not just about Islam. <laughs> there are other things to take into consideration. Uh, so it, it's been three decades of one thing and two decades of another. And uh, 9-11 did it for me, uh, uh, just made the case that Islam was important. And now, since then, my goal has been, as I suggested earlier, in large part to convince people that reform is possible. There's nothing inevitable. There's nothing static. Uh, we must help, work with, and help the um, the reformers.
0: Daniel Pipes, thank you very much indeed.
1: Thank you.